Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. This week, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson faces questioning and speechifying from members of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee as it considers her nomination for the seat on the U.S. Supreme Court being vacated by Justice Stephen Breyer. And joining the nominee in the spotlight is Demand Justice, a liberal judicial advocacy group that pushed aggressively for Justice Breyer to retire and for President Joe Biden to appoint Judge Jackson as his successor. Joining me to discuss Demand Justice's role in Judge Jackson's nomination is my colleague Hayden Ludwig, who has written and studied extensively Demand Justice and the network of groups managed by Arabella Advisors from which it sprung. Hayden, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. So before we proceed to uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination, let's discuss who Demand Justice are. Um, What's the background of the organization who runs it? Well, this is an organization that was started in 2018 by a guy named Brian Fallon, whose background is working for the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential campaign and a number of other liberal activist groups in Washington, D.C. But the kicker is that Demand Justice, when it was founded, was not a nonprofit. It was actually basically a website, a front group for another nonprofit called the 1630 Fund, which is part of a large network of liberal advocacy groups run by the company Arabella Advisors, uh, which we've discussed on the podcast before. It's since spun off, um, I believe in 2020, excuse me, late 2021, and he's become a separate nonprofit. But this is one of those rare instances of a Arabella front group leaving the nest uh, when the vast majority of the groups that we've studied from this network simply never leave the nest. Mm-hmm. So, so Arabella manages these four mega nonprofits, right? It's the there's 1630 from which Demand Justice emerged. There's New Venture Fund, which handles all their charitable deduction eligible advocacy, and then two other. 501c3 charitable organizations, Windward Fund and Hopewell Fund that do like specific issue stuff? More or less. I wish it were as neat as that. Uh, basically, you're, you're pretty much 90% of the way there. Three 501c3 groups, uh, the largest of which is the New Venture Fund, and one 501c4 group called the 1630 Fund. We should also add that there's another 501c4 group that we've started tra- tracing called the North Fund, which appears to be more of a cousin than a sister, if you will, because mm-hmm. uh, it's it was entirely funded when it was created in 2019. It was entirely funded by the 1630 Fund. Now it's received, I want to say, in the ballpark of maybe half of its proceeds, for, revenues rather, from the 1630 Fund in 2020. So it's related, and its job seems to be funding state-level advocacy groups and um, a number of... Uh, uh, grassroots initiatives or quote-unquote grassroots right, initiatives right, right. like passing marijuana and uh, that sort of thing mm-hmm. um so demand justice and arabella advisors how how closely tied are they to the administration and to democrats on capitol hill well arabella is pretty closely tied to democrats um in the biden administration we know of at least two Biden administration appointees, 
um, Paige Herwig and Jen Psaki, the, uh, the the White House spokeswoman, who used to work and consult for, respectively, for Demand Justice in the past. So now how that works is a little bit unknown because this goes to the nature of how Arabella doesn't report a lot of its funding information. We talked about how Demand Justice was a front for the 1630 Fund. That means the 1630 Fund fire, files these nonprofit Form 990 disclosures with the IRS, which we can find and, and read. But Demand Justice's um, budget was just a part of that larger pool. But the IRS doesn't require these kinds of nonprofits to disclose how big Demand Justice's budget right, within the larger right. 1630 fund budget yeah, was. Yeah, it's just all of 1630 subsumes Demand Justice, at least up until Demand Justice spins off. But then because of the way that the deadlines work, it's approximately two years, right, before before they then before their new tax return is subject to public inspection? Exactly. And so you can see the obvious problem is, well, how much was uh, Psaki and uh, Hurwick, how much were these people paid by Demand Justice when it was still within the Arabella network? And how big was Demand Justice as as an entity within the 1630 fund? We will have a better idea when Demand Justice files its Form 990 for this year. But again, like you said, the delay in, in filing and reporting these things is such that it'll be at least a year before we see any serious information on the Demand Justice budget. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Republican senators and some conservative groups have brought attention to the Demand Justice Arabella linkages uh, and they've been trying to distance themselves. How so, and what do you make of it? Well, I think one of the problems that we've seen from some friends on the conservative side is conflating Arabella Advisors, the company, which is a for-profit, a limited liability corporation, with the combination of nonprofits that are technically Arabella's clients it pays Arabella LLC for consulting services and staff time and the right. like. It's, 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 an, it's, a, it's known as association management in, in Washington that you see this a lot with trade trade associations, like little little trade associations will hire a PR firm or a, a specific association management firm to run all their operations rather than having their own distinct staff. Exactly, right. And so th- so you can already see that this is not an unheard of kind of arrangement. What makes it very unusual is is the scale of this. When we're talking about an organization, excuse me, a network that together between four nonprofits brought in um, $1.7 billion, billion with a B, in 2020 alone, that's and almost all of that money went towards political causes. That's what sets this apart. And I should say, too, there's a third distinction between we've mentioned how demand justice has, quote unquote, left the nest. That means that it became an independent 501c4 nonprofit sometime late last year. So I want to I say that in order to draw a distinction, legally speaking, between these three different sets of groups. Um, but but it's kind of a distinction without a difference. Right. I mean, the, the question that I would bring up to folks on the Arabella side who have been very careful to say, oh, whoa, 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 we have nothing to do with demand justice. We're not involved in the Supreme Court battle with Katanji Jackson Brown, uh, Brown Jackson. Right. W- what's going on right now has nothing to do with uh, Arabella Advisors LLC. What I would bring up is demand justice was created to block 
all of President Trump's uh, Supreme Court nominees. It was a little too late for Gorsuch, but it was absolutely present during the battles over Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett's respective nominations. Well, at that time, demand justice was very much a part of 1630 Fund. Mm-hmm. That Arabella Advisors has been pretty clear about its close relationship with 1630 Fund. In fact, for the longest time, they shared an office space. And to my knowledge, according to 1630 Fund's disclosures, if you want its its public files with the IRS, you get to go to Arabella's office to pick those things up. It says so in its 990. So I would point out that this is a – if there really is a distinction, it's a recent distinction. But this is one network that spawned a massive, powerful – progressive advocacy organization and now wants to distance itself from it. I find that a little hypocritical. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, now, do we have any idea who funds Demand Justice or are we are we limited again by the fact that we can't see inside the, the uh, 1630 funds, you know, inside its internal operations based on the disclosures that we already have? I suspect, and I, and I say that because the simple answer is no, we don't know concretely who funds demand justice yet, but I suspect that we're going to find a large grant from 1630 Fund because this is a spinoff organization, so no doubt it, it, will, it will send a substantial part of whatever that bu- internal budget is in the form of a grant to demand justice, mm-hmm. the separate organization. I also suspect we're going to find a funding stream from Hans-Jörg Wies, who is a Swiss billionaire, I believe we've discussed him before in the past, who um, the New York Times, for instance, has reported is a substantial donor to the Arabella Network, mostly through his own foundation going to the 501c3 side. But he does have a 501c4 with the mysterious name Berger, that's Mm B-E-R-G-E-R, Berger Action Fund. And that organization has been a major funder to the 1630 Fund because they're both 501c organizations. See, excuse me, 501c4 organizations. So I would expect to see some VS money going into demand justice as well, though of course I don't know that at this point. Right, right. And and we've we've seen again a lot of the big institutional progressive donors in big philanthropy giving to the nonprofits that Arabella manages, the New Venture Fund uh, and 1630 Fund. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, we, we have the question of, you know, how political is big philanthropy? I mean, is big philanthropy as political as all this looks? Yeah, right. Well, I think one of the larger conversations that the country needs to have, and, and I'm pleased to see that's starting to gain some momentum, is the whole issue of the weaponization of charitable groups. You know, most people deal with nonprofit groups pretty much every week out of their lives. If you go to a church, you're going to a 501c3 organization. If you give to the Red Cross, that's also a nonprofit group. We have these organizations and we give them tax exemption. And in the case of 501c3s, we reward donors with a tax deduction all for a reason. And the reason is pretty well rooted in early American history, going back to the colonial days. There are certain things that Americans don't want the government to do. We do it ourselves. And we've decided way back when the income tax was being codified um, around, I believe, 1917. Yeah, late late 1910s. Thanks, Woodrow Wilson. 
Yeah, well, well, one of the one of the key elements of that was the tax exemption for for these nonprofit groups, and the whole idea was to reward certain causes that, well, in Europe they would just say let the government run these things, right? Mm-hmm. And what we see a century later after all this is how the left has taken advantage of these kinds of organizations to say, well, registering people and busing them to the polls to vote is now a charitable act. Well, I don't know anybody on the street who would say that that's an act of charity or philanthropy, which I'll remind everybody means the love of your fellow man. It's a, it's a, it's a Christian concept. But the IRS allows certain things like that, so this is a good example of legalese substituting genuine bona fide charity. And there's, there are so many billions of dollars surrounding the two political parties in these nonprofit political groups that really shape the conversation in Washington. And we're starting to see, in the case of the Supreme Court battle, just how powerful these groups are. Yeah, let's, we let's, let's move on. Let's move on there. Uh, so now, in order, obviously, for Judge Jackson to now be being considered, uh, Justice Breyer had to step down. Uh, you know, who there there was some pressure put on him, wasn't there? Yes, exactly. That's actually what I was going to say. Um, in the case of the current battle, you might say, you might say that it's because of professional. Um, Washington D.C. based activists that are that are there 365 days out of the year putting pressure on the marbled halls of Washington D.C. You might say it's because of them that Justice Breyer has decided now under this current administration to step down. And well, we wonder where where Judge Jackson comes from. And obviously, she has you know her own list of uh, qualifications and such. But she first appeared on the public stage when Demand Justice and other allied. Uh, judicial advocacy groups said we need to put her on the, I believe it's the the District of Columbia Appellate Court, which many see, do I have that right? Which many see as the stepping stone onto the Supreme Court. Uh, They got her put front and center into consideration for nomination to that position. They also had her on a short list for nomination to the Supreme Court, even though she is on the, she is on the DC circuit, which is recognized as sort of the number two court. Yeah, it just has that reputation. So now that doesn't mean that she isn't qualified. It doesn't mean that that this is an illegitimate battle. I don't mean to say that. What I do mean to suggest is that these – exactly, and it's these powerful entrenched political actors, which are all tax-exempt by the way, which are are really pushing for their preferred uh, progressive candidate for the the administration to – and as our colleagues have shown, this administration is utterly riddled with people from – well, Arabella is one of them, but the professional activist left. So you might say much of its political – its policy positions are dictated by the activist left interests. I mean and it's in a way, certainly with Breyer retiring, you know – you have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and Breyer is a liberal, you know, and he's, you know, quite advanced in age, so he might have been inclined to do so anyway. And even if he had been inclined to do so anyway, it's a free, you know, it's a free, it's an effectively free opportunity for groups like Demand Justice to display their apparent power, you know, by telling him to do something he was already inclined to do. <laughs> well, and considering that they lost the last few Supreme Court battles that they were determined to, uh, the, the, the word is Bork, uh, both, <laughs> both Justices um, Barrett and Kavanaugh, I, I don't know that their victory list looks very long. Yeah, and, and well, and to the extent it's that sort of, you know, it's like the baseball stat wins above replacement, you know, you go, you go, <laughs> 
yeah, getting getting the liberal justice to retire in, uh, you know, with a liberal control of the presidency and the Senate, that's kind of a replacement level win. Right, exactly. And and no doubt that's a, this is a prudent strategy on their part to say, well, we don't know how the 2024 election is going to go down necessarily. Let's let's consider this now. And I think it's pretty evident that they learned their lesson with this, um, with Justice Ginsburg, who I'm sure they, they were hoping would stay on the court, well, very much alive, long enough for a Democratic president to replace her and didn't work out that yeah, way. I mean, so. I mean, during the Obama administration, President Obama was trying to encourage her to uh, to step aside. Yeah, exactly. Didn't work out that well, unfortunately for them. In, in, indeed. Um, so what can we, so obviously, you know, Jackson was the preferred choice. I mean, is it fair to say that she was the preferred choice of demand justice in the, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they offered up a short list of, uh, I believe it's about a dozen candidates, and I should also say that they're not the only group in town, right? There are a number of other great groups, excuse me, like the Alliance for Justice, they all have similar names, uh, that were pushing for this, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Basically, if you go to any Supreme Court rally, you're going to find the same handful of organizations. Demand Justice is one of the most recent to join the mix. What makes it very interesting is its origins in this vast multi-billion dollar dark money network that now claims it has nothing to do with the origins of demand justice. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, is that what they tell their donors privately? I wonder. Um, so, you know, knowing that, that, that they're so aligned, that they're so aligned with her, this, you know, these, this very large progressive ac- advocacy network, you know, what, what does that tell us about how we think, she's going to be on the court. I mean, you know, obviously, I don't think anybody's expecting any deviation from the progressive line. No, uh, you know, I I don't think I can make the claim that she, that they will have her ear if she's, if she's confirmed. I, I don't know that I could say that, but let me put it this way. They don't need to go to that extreme. The shortlist represents vetted candidates, and on the left in particular, although this is also true to some degree on the right, vetting in- includes things like, what is your stance on, well, Roe v. Wade, right? Mm-hmm. One of the hot topics going on right now, what's your stance on union card checks? What's your stance on any number of the-, the... The simple truth I think we're all observing is the court is composed of human beings with political views and biases and prejudices and and goals and vanities, you know, things that they love to be famous for and go down in history as the judge who did X, Y, or Z. That's just the simple truth of it. And as long as that's true, and I believe it's always going to be true, uh, you're going to have these professional activist groups say, well, hey, let's let's get paid to go rally in their favor and get our preferred guy on the court. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, there's a, what's what's, again, sort of unusual, actually, is that there are no you know whether whether the current court with with Justice Breyer or again we're all operating under the presumption that the Democratic majority in the Senate will carry uh, Judge Jackson's nomination. Uh, you know there will be no um, no member of the court who has been elected to office for the first time in in a long time, you know, uh, Justice O'Connor was elected to office, uh, Justice Souter had been elected to, uh, elected or appointed, I, I, I don't know if he was elected or not, 
Um, you know, but instead we've got, you know, we've now got these sort of professional, professional lawyers who have been vetted up the, vetted up the chain in part because the, the right was extremely disappointed in Justices O'Connor and Souter. Um, and in part because the, you know, the, the, it's just sort of the way that our legal system has developed. Yes. Well, legislating from the bench and all that. Um, so, uh, is there anything else, Hayden, that you, uh, that you're working on that you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, what'll be interesting to see in the realm of Arabella Advisors is how this network continues to evolve. When we first started writing about these guys back in uh, 2019, it was actually December 2018 when we first discovered this network, interestingly enough, by looking up Demand Justice and discovering where they came from, their origins. Remember, this is back when they were really, truly part of the Arabella network. Um, Arabella was hardly active online. You didn't see really any references to it. In fact, I remember about the only reference I could find to Arabella Advisors online, aside from its own website, was one mention in the Washington Post, and it has nothing to do with its political work. It was to say it's a great place to work. <laughs> I mean, my house, times if, have if changed. You're, if you're a reader now. of the Washington Post, that may be true. <laughs> yeah, well, it probably is. I've read some great things about what it's like to work there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think they take my resume anytime soon, but you never know. Uh, maybe I'll get a Christmas card from them this year. Who knows? But uh, nowadays, when, when you look them up online, I, what shocks me is, in just a few scant years, how quickly Arabella has become the poster child of left-wing dark money. And I remember when we first started reporting on this stuff, uh, you know, dark money was was considered something that that right-wing it was pra- it was practically shorthand for Charles and David Koch. Exactly. Well said. And now, you know, I see the lefties running for the hills when it comes to this topic. So at the very least, we've we've shown that there's parity, but I believe we've actually pushed it far, far, far the other direction to show that these guys massively outgun conservatives and libertarians and free market types. And um, Arabella has kind of acknowledged that. You know, they, they have they have tried to present a public image, and this is shocking for an organization that existed in the dark as far back as 2005. They finally have had to come out and acknowledge their presence, and the way they do it seems to be deny all of the all of the activity. I, I've noticed on their website, they they write the Capital Research Center has has written many, uh, I, I can't quote them exactly, but has, has basically said many falsehoods about them and, and misconstrued the facts. Well, I, I don't know which facts we've misconstrued. I'd love to hear which ones we've gotten wrong. But all this tells me that Arabella's been very much uh, dragged into the limelight and they hate it. So I'll be fascinated to see how they evolve in the coming years. All right. Well, thank you again to Hayden Ludwig for joining us. We will include links to some of his work on demand justice and Arabella advisors in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 